Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for joining me on this second episode of Fraudology for 2021. We spent a couple of episodes talking about the holiday season before it came, kind of some predictions and sharing what I saw, as well as really what a lot of the biggest companies in e-commerce have been seeing from a fraud and trust and safety perspective prior to the holidays to help you know what to be on the lookout for, trends and tactics, etc., So I wanted to spend this first half of the podcast kind of talking a little bit about the trends that you did see and the threats and issues and challenges that were seen by a lot of the merchants that I work with regularly, especially on the merchant collaboration calls that I host biweekly. So that's going to be the first half. And then the second half, I'm going to be sharing how cyberbullying hit my house this past week and just how much of an impact what we as trust and safety professionals have when we're creating policies and procedures for any company that has user-generated content. I know right now we're kind of 50-50 as far as payment fraud and then people focusing on trust and safety. I think that we're going to see those really align. I don't think there's going to be as much of a difference in the next few years, but my point isn't really to talk about what happened to us and that now I only care about this because it happened to my family. That's not the case. It's more just to provide a personal story to get you thinking when you're in those meetings about policies around what people put up and how people interact with content on your platform. Just kind of having a personal story to go with that. So just kind of wanted to give you a heads up as to where we're headed today. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Thanks for tuning in. I am glad you are here. I'm recording this on the 11th day of January, and it already feels like it's at least been a month in this new year of 2021. I've had several phone calls with big merchants and retailers this past week. We had two of the merchant collaboration calls that I run this past week, and it was the first one after the holiday season. So I took notes to share with listeners. We'll start from the retail side because I think that's always the most interesting after the holidays. And we still have yet to see all the chargebacks, though I think we're seven weeks past Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So I know that they're coming in. But when I spoke with the, I can't remember how many people showed up to this call, I think it was maybe 10 or 15, but they were representing very large retailers. When we asked kind of what the biggest challenge was this year, 
everyone agreed that it was shipping and logistics. And yeah, technically within an e-commerce company that falls under supply chain. But when you own the chargeback piece of your company, kind of, you know, matters to you too. So the biggest challenge was the shipping partners. They were really overwhelmed. It's outside of your company. So you have very little control. I mean, you're paying them to deliver it from your warehouse or your fulfillment center to your customer, but it's out of your company's hands unless you have your own delivery, which I think Amazon is the only one really, unless you're talking about delivery apps, which is a whole other set of problems. One of the companies on the call had their main shipping partner refuse to deliver their packages due to the volume. And I know there were headlines uh, listing several merchants on that. So I don't think that I am outing this company. I hope not anyway. So in one example, they said they quickly contracted another shipping partner and they do have contracts with other shipping partners already. So they started routing packages to another shipping partner and some of those packages just ended up sitting in a warehouse for a week or more. The shipping companies just were not prepared for how much volume there was. I know that there were lots of extra drivers hired, but that's a high risk job in the middle of a pandemic. And it's not just drivers, right? It's warehouse employees for sorting. It's QA is something that a lot of the merchants were talking about, like, okay, so they hired extra people for shipping and delivery. But like, what about researching all these missing packages that we have? It was super challenging. Chargebacks are coming in for it. One other retailer said that they've had several situations where the item is delivered to the customer a lot later than it's expected. And the chargeback comes in before the item is received. So an example would be if the item was expected before December 22nd and the chargeback was filed on December 26th because they were quite angry that there wasn't the item for their loved one to open on Christmas Day for those that celebrate Christmas within the U.S. So the chargeback was filed on the 26th and then the item was received by the cardholder on January 6th. So then what do you do? In that case, you do have a couple of options. You can provide proof that the item was received if the chargeback was did not receive reason code and try to fight it. You can also, I mean, this is very time intensive, but you can try to contact the cardholder and let them know that you now see that the item was delivered and you can confirm that. And then if they said, yes, it did, then you can have them fill out a form that says that they did receive the package after all and that they wish to drop the chargeback. That's really the only way that I've found for companies to have a chargeback dropped. A lot of companies will just tell their cardholder to call their bank. Doesn't really work that way. There's not really a recall button on the issuer side once a chargeback's in motion. So really the only thing to do is to go back through the chargeback process with a signed affidavit from the cardholder saying they no longer dispute the charge. I've created some processes around this for clients depending on the situation, if it is reasonable or not, depending on the situation, and has greatly increased their win rate. So there you go. Some free consulting advice on chargebacks. I am full of them because anyone who's listened to me on podcasts before knows that for some odd reason, this is my favorite subject. (laughs) An even bigger issue of all these shipping problems for retailers with physical goods is that because of the legitimate shipping issues, Professional refunders eh, just took advantage, full advantage of those issues. Lots of claims that did not receive fraudulently. There are five different types of refunding. And I've talked about this before in the past episode, as well as on a webinar that's out there, I think through CNP. 
But basically there's five different types, but the most common is just claiming that they didn't receive it. Now, if you have a policy around did not receive, then they'll escalate it to sending an empty box or sending a box with something else in it. And then as soon as it hits the warehouse calling for a refund because of COVID, a lot of times there's just piles of returns that the warehouse can't get to. So then customer service gives a credit. And then a few days later, the warehouse opens a box of a can of peas or little green army men or pinata candy. I don't know. The refunder fees on services like Telegram and other that advertise refunder services. So professional refunders where you know you make a purchase, you contact the refunder once you get the item and give them all the information about your purchase. Or sometimes you give them access to your online account, which is basically consensual account takeover, but still very dangerous and very risky for both the merchant and the cardholder. So these guys usually charge a percentage, well, they do charge a percentage of the order value, right? So if you order something for $1,000, say, and the refunder fee is 10%, then you're only paying $100 for that order, but you're not paying the company that provided it to you, you're providing this refunder because they got you money back on your card. Their fees went down to like record lows over the holidays, somewhere as low as 5%, depending on the company. And some of these e-commerce companies, the refunder limits are up to $25,000. I do know who, but I've tried to reach out as much as I can, and that's all I can do. But certainly not throwing anyone under the bus. But it's quite high and quite costly. I know that merchants are having a really hard time defining this. So refunds are just in one big bucket. And especially with legitimate shipping issues, what's the percentage of legitimate refunds that didn't have an item returned back and what's the percentage of fraudulent refunds that didn't have the return back. My team has been working on at least one project for a retailer on refunding and we have found a few ways to calculate an ROI. It's based on the information on the dark web forums, but at least we can kind of get our heads around it, but it's still really tricky and this is after like several iterations of trying to figure it out. So it's super challenging. And because you can't calculate an ROI very easy, then it's hard to get attention and prioritization within your company. So this is going to continue to be a challenge until there are more policies in place. There may be technology that comes out. I know there's at least one that I think does help a little bit, but it helps in a different way. So anyway, so that's that. There was another retailer that shared that they were having a lot of customer service calls because prepaid gift cards were being used at the merchant e-commerce site. So they were card brand prepaid cards. So like Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, etc. A lot of those are registered cards. So you put in a name and number and then that provides an AVS response or an address verification service response. And the victims who had their Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover prepaid cards stolen and used on this merchant's website said that they had just called to activate the card and like five minutes later it was used on this merchant site. So that tells me that there's a breach somewhere. It could be at the grocery stores where they're scratching off the number and waiting for it, or they could be generating card numbers like Alexander Hall talked about on a previous episode where they use math as a payment method, as he says, which is super fascinating. And I think we need to dive into that another time, <laughs> another another way. But the other group of merchants I was just going to highlight and issues that I was going to share is something I'm hearing from a lot of companies right now. It is especially hitting digital goods merchants, whether it's online 
digital banking or brokerages or digital currency or wallets or any online gaming, anything that has like account value seems to be really popular right now, though some retailers and other types of companies have seen onesie twosies of this. So like it's going to be hitting everyone soon. It's kind of what I'm calling like a new kind of account takeover. But the questions I'm getting are, is there a new kind of account takeover? Or is there a way to clone or emulate legitimate users device? And the answer is yes. If you have not listened to episode 13 with Ellie Dominance, the CEO of Q6 Cyber, I highly recommend listening to it after this. We talked about it quite a bit, but maybe not in as much detail as needed or not from like the merchant's point of view. So this is because data is being harvested using malware. It used to be really targeting banks. And so it's not new to anyone that was screaming at their phone or their car or whatever that this isn't new. I know it's not new, but it is new to e-commerce. They've really set their sights on e-commerce in the last six months or so. And it seems to be getting worse by the minute because I feel like I'm getting more and more questions about this. So essentially, your user downloads malware, never on purpose, but via a link or there's several different ways that they can download the malware or unbeknownst to them. But then that really hides in there. And so whenever your customer logs into a website on their device, whether it's phone or computer, and Ellie actually said on the podcast that it was more computer than phone, which I thought was interesting. Whenever they log into a site that the entire session details get sent to the host of the malware. That includes username, password, email address, device information, such as the device ID or fingerprint browser language, screen resolution, what browser version they're using, just all types of things that basically the things that if you're using device ID technology for your website, that's essentially what they're getting. It's really fascinating. I actually really enjoy looking at the live feeds that Q6 gets from this. It's not cool, but it is cool if that makes sense being able to see everything that they're putting through together. So I understand that they're using emulators such as Lincoln Sphere. I don't know a ton about emulators. Admittedly, if you do and you want to come on the podcast and share that, let me know. That would be great because yeah, but no pitching your product. I just want information more about that and what it looks like and how to detect it vendor agnostic. I felt like I just had to add that little asterisk there. I wish I didn't But another thing I wanted to make sure to say is that not all providers are able to identify these. And there have been some merchants who have contacted their provider and said, hey, it looks like this fraudster is emulating the user device and the providers are telling them that's not possible. It wasn't possible and it wasn't happening, but now it is. So it's important to be working with a company that's kind of staying on the cutting edge of that and aware of how they can tweak their models or their offerings to really help and respond to it. Dynamic device ID can help with this two-factor authentication as long as it's not via email. I recommend looking at the password resets and the timing between a purchase or when the account is drained. I think you'll see some patterns there if you do that. Trying to be really careful because we don't want we don't want to give away all the secrets, but I can kind of point you in the right direction. I chose to work with Q6 because I am blown away by the information that they can provide in their data feeds to merchants about these types of exposures, as well as multiple other use cases. 
that is an option. I think it's important to know that the risk signals are much harder to detect using the traditional case management system, as well as some device ID technology in the way we have. And again, this is a problem we created, right? Like three, four, five, six years ago, when ATO really started coming up and infiltrating all different merchants that have any accounts, that was something that we had to respond to and responded to via updates and case management systems to be able to detect signals and behavior, as well as device ID. And they are able to get very, very close. So there is even, and we talked about this on that other podcast episode too, there's even one malware that allows users to log into the consumer's device and the customer's device to be able to really emulate them and the user will never know. Fortunately, that malware is not being used as much as some of the other ones, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I think it's so important to know these things. I think it's important to be aware that that's happening, to be on the lookout, to talk to your teams about it. From what I understand, the device will be very, very similar, maybe one or two numbers at the end or IP address, same thing, one or two numbers at the end, it will be different or the behavior will be totally different and the address and everything else will be different, but the device is the same. So I think sometimes just knowing these things are possible will help you in identifying tactics and threats that are targeting your company. Switching gears... One of my neighbors, I was walking the dog the other day and he asked me, what'd you guys do on New Year's? And I'm like, I don't remember, but probably just stay home because I feel like that's what we do all the time. <laughs> We're on month like 10 of essential quarantine, more or less, but it's got its benefits too. And I'm choosing to look at the bright side whenever possible. That said, it has been a rough week for my household and I don't typically talk about my family, but I got my child's permission on this one. We have had quite the week in our house and it does kind of stem around online fraud and abuse and content. So I didn't realize that all of this goes on on social media. So I think that's why I'm sharing it with you guys. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you know, a piece of this story. So it actually starts 18 months ago, of all things. So my daughter was a freshman in high school, and this was pre-pandemic, obviously. She saw an ad for a professional YouTube video that was being shot by a YouTube channel that she follows and begged and begged me to be a part of it. And I you know, read through the disclosure and everything and thought, well, okay. And had the conversation with her as far as, are you sure? And you know, this is permanent and blah, blah, blah. And do we know what the plan is and all that? And I also talked to the production company and found that they were being very conscious of minors being involved and were not going to be exploitative or anything. It was more of like a social experiment. And I'm being vague on purpose. I apologize. But I am conscious that this is also a public format. God forbid the trolls find her mom's podcast and that's all over. I don't know. It's already all over. So anyway, she was in it with five or six other high schoolers. And like I said, it was a social experiment. And she was there for about two and a half hours. And I think the video ended up being 15, 20 minutes. So it was edited down and condensed quite a bit, like most shows. And she was portrayed as the villain. and. I will admit, she will even admit that she wasn't exactly on her best behavior. One of the 
participants, I mean, they didn't know each other before the video was filmed, but one of the participants said something to her right before they started filming that kind of made her mad. And she has her mom's sense of justice. So she was a little bit snippy and bratty. And she owns that, which I think is pretty cool for a teenager to do. But when it was released, which was about like a month, month and a half later, it kind of blew up. I mean, at least at the time we thought it had gotten a lot of attention. I think there were like over 3 million views on YouTube. I think there's a lot more now. They turned off the comments of the YouTube video because there were minors involved, but a lot of people still wanted to talk about it. So there were Reddit sub threads made about my child. There were a lot of people who were looking for her on Instagram. Not many people found her and she put her profile on private. So she got a few disturbing DMs, but it died down fairly quickly, maybe within a month or so. She was recognized at the mall a couple times, which was kind of funny. Like it was pretty popular. I admittedly didn't realize how popular it was going to be. So she changed her name on Instagram several times. She's never had her last name on there. And thankfully her last name wasn't on the YouTube video either. I made sure of that. And there was no defining information about her. I think it was assumed that we live in the metropolitan area of Seattle because that's where the production company is. But that's about all that anyone knew that and her first name, which is fairly common. So anyway, it finally died down after about a month. And So we've gone on with our lives. I mean, she's a whole other year and a half older. She's a lot more mature and she hasn't been in school for, gosh, almost a year at this point. I mean, online school, but not the same thing and really didn't think anything of it. But then about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago at this point, There was a huge resurgence of this video. In fact, someone turned it into a TikTok and it became the number one video on TikTok. And the way that she explains it to me, a bunch of people made copycat videos trying to become famous because when they see one of the top videos on TikTok, they think, oh, if I copy this, then mine will go viral too. At one point, every time she'd open up her home screen, and this wasn't because she was tagged or anything, it was just because of the algorithms and also because there were so many. Like every third video in her For You had her face in it, which was creepy. While there were five or six other kids, teenagers involved in it, and she wasn't even the one that won the social experiment, she was by far the one that got the most attention. And she's also like her mom, where she has a strong personality. You either love her or hate her, I guess, but... She really is such a sweet kid. And that was 15 minutes of her life, really two and a half hours, shrunk down into 15 minutes. And that's not who she is. I know that everyone who knows her knows that people that aren't her mom, but know her knows that. But unfortunately, it just became this big thing. And they, I don't know, I say they, but a very large group of people found her Instagram account. And before all this happened with it resurging on TikTok, I think she had 118 followers on Instagram. After two days, it was at 13,000. After four days, it was at 27,000, I think. Now, as of today, it was up to 68,000 followers. And those are mostly hate followers. Those are not people who think she's great. There's been over... 500 memes with her face on it with crazy, crazy things. She mentioned that she loved marine biology on the video. So somebody put her face on the little mermaid. That one was cute. 
There were a lot of others that were not so cute or funny. There were fan accounts made of her. One was talking like she was her and posting really disgusting pictures. Some of them were naked pictures of someone else claiming to be my child. It got really bad. I just, I've, I've never watched anything on YouTube or even on TV and thought I want to spend time on Photoshop and create a meme of this random person. But I'm not a teenager in this generation in a pandemic with lots of freedom. So trying to remember that. So I think it's kind of important to note, like she had three posts in the last six years on Instagram before all this, like three pictures. So they were just basically taking the three pictures that she posted on Instagram over the last six years, as well as screenshots of the YouTube video and turning them into these things. And it just got absolutely ridiculous. And I think by far the worst thing that she experienced was the direct messages. Apparently, so even when she put her profile on private, they, the DMs were still coming in. So it kind of was like, well, what's the point, I guess? At one point, she was getting five DMs every minute. I thankfully had her turn off the ding because it was driving me batty. Some of the direct messages were telling her to kill herself. There were adults that were saying, if you were my kid, I'd, and then like insert very abusive comment here. It was ugly guys. Like roughly 80% of the messages were just absolutely filthy and disgusting and just mean. I mean, who in the world tells a teenager that they don't know, or even that they know, like, can we just all agree that you should never, ever, ever tell anyone to go kill themselves? Especially when there was no way for them to know this, but she has really struggled with depression and suicide ideations in the past. This kid's been through so much. That was one reason why I said okay to the YouTube video because she'd gone through a really, really hard ordeal in middle school that it's pretty unconscionable. So just, it was a lot. And then on a Saturday night at eight o'clock at night, my husband and I were watching a movie and she comes in just completely white faced and says, mom, I don't know how, but look. And two people actually sent her pictures or a screenshot of our house on Google images. And that freaked me out big time. Because when she asked me for an Instagram, she was 12. I think it was because there were kids going up to middle school that she wanted to stay in touch with. And that was the best way to do it. I set her down and we have lots of policies and things in her profile. We really locked it down as much as we could. She didn't have it on private at this point when she had that many followers. But like I said, she kind of decided, well, what's the point if they can still direct message me? And a few of her real friends in real life couldn't find her when she was on private. So that's the only thing that really wasn't there this time. But she didn't have a last name on there anywhere on her account. There was no name of her school or her neighborhood. She was very much instructed by me never to say those things. because that would really narrow down where we live. So we turned off location on the app. So I don't use Instagram, but I know a lot of people that do. And they say, if you have location turned on the app, then you can see the GPS coordinates on the picture. But she didn't have that. We had turned that off. And then she only interacted with people she knew in real life. I'm so lucky that I know some of the most brilliant people in cybersecurity, as well as in fraud prevention and in trust and safety as well. And so I sent a frantic note to the head of Wiser Security Training, Gabrielle Freelander. And 
He's just such a great guy and they provide free cybersecurity training videos and webinars. I highly recommend checking them out. I said, how can this happen? Like, how do they know where we live? And I should also say too, sorry, I'm kind of skipping around, but the first thing I told her was do not write back, just block and delete. Because I know that when you reply, you're confirming that they have the right address because they don't actually know. You're also egging them on and, and encouraging that behavior. So I just said, maybe do anything. And then I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. I really suggest that if anyone ever sends you or your child any of these things, do not engage. That's number one rule. But number two rule was how the heck did they get this information? So what Gabrielle told me was that while we turned off location in the app, you also have to turn it off within your phone. It's in your settings. But basically, you go into privacy, then you tap location services. You scroll down and tap Instagram and select never or only while using app to choose location access. So the reason that they have location access on your phone level is because of the advertisements. It's the same reason why when I get off a plane in New York or Paris or Tel Aviv, I start when if I open up my Facebook app, which I haven't in months, but if I were to, if I also haven't traveled in months either though, so there's that, I would see ads directly for where I was location wise. And so that's why they need it on there. How they aren't able to mask this is a whole other story, but I don't a hundred percent know how they're able to still get GPS coordinates that way. But I do know that if you're looking for it, you can find it as long as someone doesn't have this turned on on their phone. And I know this was why, because a, like I said, like there was no other way that they could have gotten it. Like she has a different last name than us. Her last name isn't registered to the house or anything like that. I went through everything that I possibly could. She hadn't clicked on the phishing email. There were just so many different things that we went through to diagnose this issue. And also of note, once we did this on her phone, she never got a picture of our house again. So I'm assuming it's that. And I was pretty surprised. I mean, over 10,000 people saw the LinkedIn post I did about this. So, and I think a lot of people didn't know about it either, but there were several people on the cyber side that totally knew about it. But as a lot of people know, cybersecurity and fraud are kind of cousins. They're on a Venn diagram. There's some overlap, but there are some core skills or common things that are known that just, I will never claim to be an expert on that side. So that's why I am very lucky to have such an awesome network. So yeah, the hate continued. It really got bad. But then she had massive depression and actually got physically sick for two days. And she had gone on one live video with one of the castmates to try to kind of explain herself and hopefully show them another side of her and her true self. And and also that she's really matured in 18 months. I mean, for a teenager, that's like three different personalities ago, more or less, maybe two. And I think that helped a little bit as far as what she was getting the attention online, but it kind of was just went from like 80% hate to 60% hate. And those followers were mostly hate followers and probably mostly teenagers, but I don't know. There were definitely some adults that were into it as well. It just boggles my mind. There are all these people coming out, like trying to get famous on her coattails because there are so many kids that want that and think that that is validation and that means they made it. And guys, we really need to figure this out for our kids. I've known this for a while. I'm not just suddenly awake and talking like this because this happened to us, but like 
holy cow, we talk so much in our house about how social media isn't real life and how people can be anyone they want to be, including total jerks and who you are in person and, and being kind is so much more important than how many likes you get on a picture. So we've been having these conversations for a long time and I, I'm sure you guys have this too. And, and I know a lot of people too don't have older kids or just don't have kids in general, but you have nieces and nephews, you have kids that are going to be teenagers soon. And man, I can just say, I'm sorry that I know what's coming, but I'm so lucky that I have an incredible kid. She's just the smartest, most mature. I mean, she is old for her age and everyone whose mother says that, but this still took a toll. Her dad and I don't live together. We're divorced, but we had a phone call the other day and just decided we needed to shut down Instagram. Like it was not healthy for her. And I think she needed us to do that because though she was pretty upset with us and felt like she was going to miss out and that she needed to know what people were saying about her. Once we took it off of her phone and were in the process of deactivating it, she was herself again. It was like, she was just completely lighter. Her sore throat went away. Like she was feeling so much better. She was just lighter and she was able to be a kid again. And that was so important. So (sighs) here is my point of sharing all this on this podcast. (laughs) There's a couple actually. One is, like I said, if you're a parent or you're an aunt or an uncle or grandparent or you have kids or young adults um, in your life, you've got to be aware of what they're putting online and what they're being subjected to. I thought I had a pretty good idea, but until this happened to my child, I didn't realize just this like counterculture online of bandwagon jumping and like just spewing hate on random people because they all of a sudden are famous question mark like she wasn't even trying it was like something she'd done a year and a half ago and then this tiktok i mean geez i couldn't even imagine if she was a youtube star or whatever like she wanted to be when she was eight thankfully that phase ended i assumed that cyberbullying mostly happened with kids that knew each other But these kids and adults had zero problem saying and creating horrible things about my child whom they'd never met. And that just makes me worried about our future. (laughs) I think it's important to tell kids if they're not going to say something to someone's face, they shouldn't say it at all. I was talking to a friend who's a psychologist the other day, and she said, and she couldn't remember if this was real or like hypothetical, either in a movie or something she read in her books, but She had said that at one point there was a conversation about the nuclear weapons button here in the U.S. I'm sure it's a lot more than a button, but it is in the movies. And she was saying that there was some talk about how easy it is for people to be detached when they aren't seeing the damage and the destruction that they're causing. And so the question was posed, how do we create some pause? And this was years and years ago. And like I said, not sure if this was real, like political conversation or just hypothetical in a classroom somewhere. But I thought the point was relevant enough that how do you express to someone how much damage they're going to cause from far away without seeing it and really understand the gravity of the situation. And the psychiatrist that was talking about this said, well, you could hand them a gun and have them shoot the person to their left, which sounds like, holy cow. I mean, that's like very, very violent. But the point is, Most of the time, you're not going to be able to hurt someone face to face than you could if they're on the other side of a computer screen or the other side of the world. When we're detached, then we don't really 
care about the impact or we just don't understand the impact. I don't think it's a matter of care necessarily. In some cases, it definitely is. But I think that's just part of why I wanted to talk about it. But also, I have a lot of people asking me, like, how to keep their kids safe online. And Wiser does a really good job of this. It's W-I-Z-E-R. I mentioned them earlier, so I don't want to try to step on their toes. But what I will say is these are the things that we did for her that worked until this point. Talk to them about what they watch and who they follow online. I always tell my daughter that I worry about her eyeballs and I want to make sure that her eyes aren't seeing things that her brain can't unsee. I say it a little bit differently now that she's older, but that's kind of how I started. Every once in a while, I'll just be like, how are your eyes? How are your eyeballs? They see like, what are you watching? Add all the privacy settings you can remove the geolocation, not just on the app, but on the phone. Also, someone commented in my LinkedIn about Samsung. There's another place within a Samsung phone that you also have to turn off for geolocation services to be off. So you may want to Google that or uh, you can dig through my LinkedIn post because I didn't pull that up. I'm sorry. Don't include any personal identifiable information. I kind of went over that, but last name, phone number, email, name of school, address, etc. I have seen so many kids have their profiles on public and have the name of their school and their phone number to text them. And I don't even want to know what kind of text messages they're getting and all kinds of stuff. Because there's also the creep factor too, which luckily didn't come into play here, but it happens to a lot of kids, especially teenage girls and young adults. Don't click on any links in a DM, especially if you don't know them. That is rife with phishing attacks. I just saw a number about how many phishing, I'm going to misquote it, but there were just a lot of phishing attacks via social media recently that were actually identified and it was a high number. And don't respond to any hate or doxing attempts. We're grateful that there wasn't any more information to be had or that they didn't dig any further, but it is really, really creepy and pretty scary to have random strangers on the internet know exactly where you live. So yeah, kind of just gives me the heebie jeebies <laughs> From a trust and safety perspective, <sighs> over the, yeah, I have to sigh for this one. Over the last week, while we were going through this in my house, when the U.S. was also experiencing a real life impact of user-generated content, via the attack on the Capitol. And I try really hard to keep this podcast politically agnostic, but I do think it's important to highlight that a lot of the things that were used to incite that violence, to get people on the airplane, to go to Washington, D.C., to storm the Capitol, etc., did happen online. And some were within policies, others weren't. It's a really hard job to be in trust and safety for social media. I think it's fair that I say that I know a lot of the members, not just, I shouldn't say a lot, but I know several people that work for, I think, all the social media companies. And I'm not hating on them. I also made the decision not to contact someone very high up at Instagram and Facebook that I do know. I even have their cell phone number, but I decided I didn't want special treatment, but also I didn't know what they could do within the realms of their own guidelines. And so I just decided if it got really, really bad, if it went beyond that, that I would reach out to them. I also knew they were super duper busy this last week. So if you were wondering why I didn't phone a friend, that's why I did phone Gabby, but that's it in this case. 
And I've told very few people the whole story, but I just have to say that the number of people who have asked me like how they can help on maybe a more cynical level and in more of like a retribution level is very sweet. <laughs> I've said it's not necessary, but it's honestly meant a lot just because it's nice to know we're not alone, I guess. And that people that don't know her still have my daughter's back. And that's really cool. This industry. I mean, there's a reason I love it. There's many reasons, but that's one. I think we're so small and tight knit community that we'll drop everything to help each other. So, but all that to say, like, I'm not going to pretend to know how hard it is for people in trust and safety for any company that has user generated content. It's not just social media, right? It's marketplaces. It's, uh, I'm trying not to say company names. It's online bulletin boards. It's all those different companies. And, and I know a lot of them and I've had these conversations with them before. It's websites that have fan clubs. It's a lot of different sites. Whenever there's user generated content, there's a lot of issues that come from that. And it usually falls under trust and safety, which so does online fraud. For those of you that aren't familiar with the term. I can imagine it's a real challenge and I know it is. I've had conversations with these people about it, but without outing them specifically, I'm just kind of generalizing it. But I know it's really hard when your job is to keep people safe on your platform and to retain their trust in your platform, but that the platform's ultimate goal is to have people stay on it as long as possible and consume as many advertisements as possible. and let's be honest, hate and really crazy over the top things are what's going to keep most people engaged on those platforms. And I know that there are a lot of things that are removed. So I'm certainly not saying it's totally the wild, wild west, so to speak, but maybe just the wild west. But there's also just no education around decorum. There's no common education for anyone who's online, right? Like this thing called the internet, Kind of became a part of our daily lives over the last 15, 20 years. And not everybody is well versed in it. Not everyone knows how to verify a source. Not everyone knows that not everything that's placed on the internet is true. Not everyone understands the algorithms that target your feed. And so you're kind of in an echo chamber, whether that's political or otherwise. Right now it's very political. So just a lot of people don't understand those things. And I feel like there needs to be some kind of, I mean, gosh, you need to take a test to drive a car. You need to have a license to drive a car. And I'm certainly not saying that we need to go that extreme, but I do think it'd be a really, really good idea just to have some general common sense training available for people. But then again, it would be opt in, right? And like with most everything that's kind of optional, the people that need it the most may not take it. But I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking like, how do we solve this? It really does come down to the policies and it comes down to your users knowing that if they report something, it'll be taken down. Now, on the flip side, on another social media channel that I'm aware of, there have been several people that have either had posts removed or had their accounts suspended or closed for things that don't seem to violate policies. So it is really important to be consistent. Because that's another way that you can lose trust really fast with your users is by being inconsistent with your policies. And I just think it's a bigger conversation that we all should be having in some level of trust and safety as far as what's our civic responsibility, what's our social responsibility. I'm just thinking of all these kids who don't have parents that are really involved or that just don't have the coping skills that my daughter has gained. And 
how much the horrible attention she's gotten in the last week and a half could have really gone the other way. And just how many kids does that affect either for life or they do what some of the DMs say and they do take their lives. Like it's just, it's mind boggling to me. And I think that I kind of took for granted the fact that I don't have any evidence really online of my high school years. (laughs) I think I'm very grateful for that. Even my college years too. And I'm extremely grateful for that as well. While I don't have that many pictures of them, I have plenty of memories and that's all I need, but I don't need them running on the internet to be dug up 18 months later and become the number one video on TikTok. Like apparently it even passed all these influencers. I don't know. I don't speak that language, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk about the importance of policies and just all these things. I mean, if my child can get this much attention so quickly, I can't imagine what more popular people online get. And I mean, I think I've heard a lot of them talk about the haters and the trolls, but man, guys, like we just have to do better as society. It just is so frustrating to me. And I know this podcast is primarily based on fraud. So I want to make sure that I do talk about quite a bit of fraud as well that's going on. But as far as this goes, I still have more questions and answers, but I'm just terrified that this new generation is going to have a tiny part of their lives all of a sudden put them in the spotlight and at risk and just how they're treating each other and all of that. So that's what I have to say to that. Just a couple ending announcements. One is I am hosting the Fearless Female Fraud Fighter virtual retreat on January 23rd. It's a Saturday. I am really excited about this. It's something that I kind of wish was around for a while and saw that no one else was creating it. So uh, why not me? But we are having an incredible guest speaker, Heather Monahan, who is a bestselling author and has done a TED Talk and is my business mentor and who I just absolutely love. And I know everyone that joins us will too. And we're going to talk about goal setting and just also have some networking and some community with other women in our field. It's not going to be a stitching bitch as they used to call it. It's really going to be action-based and just lifting each other up. And I just feel like after all of us have been sitting in our houses for so long without a lot of community, that that is one way that I can help bring some of us together. And there will be more fog fighter happy hours and other things very soon. Also on last week's episode, Matt Vega and I teased out an announcement because of the crazy week I've had this week, keeping my child together and everything else. We're going to postponing it to next week. So I'm sorry, but hang tight and I promise it'll be worth it. And I am going to have a chargeback questionnaire and answer like an ask Carice anything episode about chargebacks. I've already gotten so many questions in, but if you have any specific to your business, that can be generalized, let me know, send me a LinkedIn message or an email and I'll get to as many as I possibly can. I think that's it for this week. Thanks you guys for hanging in there. And I look forward to talking with you next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.